You folks see that flashing sign up there? Now that sign says applesauce. No, no. I, I'm kidding. It says applause. All right. Now, remember, we're on in 10 seconds, so get ready to have a good time. All right, here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I'm Patrick Rapole. And I'm Jim Laskowski. Today we're going to be talking about Joseph Losey, but before that, how you doing, Jim? You know, I'm doing better. I, yeah. I, I, had, a, I had a rough weekend with the flu. That's so. right. That's right. You were very sick. Lots of green tea and chicken noodle soup. So that was pretty much the extent of my fun week, mm-hmm. dealing with that. So, yeah, nothing too exciting going on. I had... Yet another customer interaction at work that was rather confrontational. He he didn't believe that one of our breads was actually Aunt Millie's bread. So I had to sh- actually show him on the packaging. Because we have f- so many different types. We have fresh and soft, soft and good, all these different kinds. The same bakery makes these different brands. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, I want the Aunt Millie's white bread. I don't want anything else. And I well, we didn't have the specific kind, but... The soft and good is exactly the same bread, only in different packaging. It has a little bear on it. It looks really cute. And so I gave it to him, and he's like, this isn't Aunt Millie's bread. You're lying. And I was like, um, no, I'm not, sir. I, 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 I promise. <laughs> I promise that this is our bread. And I even showed him the logo because mm-hmm. we have Aunt Millie's logo on the back of every bread. Mm-hmm. And he still didn't believe me. It's, so he was. He was. It's just, amazing how contentious people can get over bread. I know. I. I, don't I was think shocked. I've, I don't think I've ever had a strong opinion about bread mm. in my entire life. He just wanted one specific loaf in existence. Apparently, I think the only the, kind. I think special the loaf. Best bread I ever had. The the height of my feelings about it was. Yeah, this is good. I yeah. enjoy this. That's it. I know. People That's get passionate about their bread, it's incredible. man. Incredible. They get passionate. What can I say? It's true. I mean, think about it. Maybe. You know how we get about films? Right. There's got to be a bread podcast. The breadcast? Yeah. Ba- totally. Baker's Club? <laughs> yeah. Come on. I think so. The Baker Square? Oh, man. Mm. I don't know. Ever I since, can get behind those pies. That's for damn sure. Ever since the... Uh, I mean... It, not that it, I would fuck It's, it's not often that you, there's, a, there's a really simple dividing line, but the cracked weed episode is where they just lost me. <laughs> I couldn't stand it anymore. Really? Cracked weed. Controversial episode? Um, we don't have any mail today, so I figured we'd go right into the. Uh, do we have any female? We don't have. We don't have any males. Actually, we females. do. Females. We have a female sitting by. Carly, yeah, Carly is sitting by. Yeah. Hey guys. Hi. <laughs> Just pretend I'm not here for the rest of the episode, okay? Yeah, she didn't. She She's didn't got get homework a, to do. She know. didn't get a chance to watch yeah, the home, movie. Homework, so by homework he means looking at the mod cloth sale items. Huge <laughs> uh-huh. sale. By yeah. The what do they got there? Um, clothes, home goods, um, all sorts of stuff. Girly, girly things mm. that are all extremely overpriced. Cookbooks? Mm. This is, yeah, well, this is, I clicked out of that. From seed to skillet. This is on Design Sponge. <laughs> if you guys are into, like, interior design or anything like that, 
Design sponge is your shit. All right. I'm sure there's an interior design cast as well. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the cracked weed episode of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, Jim. What's up? What movies did you watch this week? We watch the movies. 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 This is what we watched this week. What movies did I watch this week? The first is uh, Cape Fear, which is Martin Scorsese's remake. Okay, so the the remake. Uh, yeah, and I know we'll probably do a Scorsese episode, obviously, in the future. At the very least, I want to do a bonus <laughs> episode about the two Cape Fears. Yeah, I, I had to rewatch it because, as you well know, in my mind, I remember thinking, this is my least favorite Scorsese movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had a change of heart. Um, oh. I really find it, it rather entertaining now, but Good. the only way I can accept this movie is if it's on B level terms, I guess. Well, that's exactly say. yeah, that's exactly what it is. I would consider this to be like his version of like you know a, a Friday Thirteenth or a Fatal Attraction, mm-hmm. you know, just sort of like. Be, I, I think a lot of it has to do with my reaction to Shutter Island because I felt like that was Scorsese's version of uh, a Samuel Fuller movie, like Shot Corridor. Mm-hmm. And like just his interpretation slash homage. I use the word slash again. God. Sorry. That's all right. That just means that they took a drink. I know, but I'm mad at myself. I told Mm -hmm. myself I wasn't going to do that. Okay, anyway. Um, So yeah, like because – So did Axl Rose. (laughs) Buckethead got really mad. He kept using the word slash. No. Look at the hat. No cowboy hat. How many many times did he have to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken for – to replace his bucket on his head. I think he just started buying them in bulk right from the company. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. What, what has Slash been up to? He's been in some bands recently, hasn't mm-hmm. he? Yeah. Wasn't he on at the Super Bowl halftime show or something? Yeah, I think he was. I didn't watch it. I don't know if he was in Velvet Revolver. I yeah, think he was. he was. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. So, <laughs> so Cape that was That was some serious digressing. Yeah. Um, yeah, but because I'm... I, the more and more I watch Shutter Island, the more and more I like it. Uh, I think the the same might hold true with Cape Fear because I've only seen it maybe twice. This would be my third time watching it, and uh, I I can't really necessarily get behind that it's a beautifully constructed thriller. No, but it's just fun. I mm-hmm. mean, De Niro is a honey glazed ham in this movie, mm-hmm. and it's just fun to watch. A honey glazed ham dripping with cheese. Yes. Yum. Yeah. Oh hungry. God. Yeah. We should have eaten before. I know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I can't really say at this point if I actually actively dislike a Scorsese movie because I think I like all of them, obviously some more than others. Um, but I can find pretty much a redeeming quality in all of his work. For some reason, Cape Fear in my mind just stood out as being just way too over the top and cheesy and not in an entertaining way well, and more of an annoying way just because yeah. De Niro was so over the top. Yeah. And it's definitely number one. I don't think it's as good as the original. No. Um, and, no. and it's also, it's not as effective. It's also definitely like one of the only times that Scorsese did a studio movie mm-hmm. as opposed to doing his movie. Right. Um, and you can tell, and it's, that's sort of one of the interesting things I think about Scorsese is, uh, that he makes these movies that are extremely popular. Like, I think Goodfellas is probably America's favorite movie. I think somewhere in the past 10 years, it replaced Casablanca. Or The just, Godfather. Or The Godfather. And now Goodfellas is everyone's... Like, if you were going to do a poll of everyone... Universally of everyone, movie, movie. Yeah, it would be there. 
and right. but it's his movie. It's not a studio kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Cape Fear is the one time he did do that. Made some compromises, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I definitely like it a lot more. Now. I think the only Scorsese movie I have problems with, and I should see this again because I saw this when I was young and dumb. What is Kundun? Yeah, yeah I, and I literally could not get past the fact that they were speaking English. Right. Um, I think in a post Passion of the Christ world, where people are they're they're no longer afraid to make movies in different languages. Mm-hmm. I, th- I well no I wouldn't say that because Slumdog Millionaire was in English, right? Um. Yeah. Yeah. It was. That was sub- sure. that. I can't remember if that was parts of it might have been. I don't remember. Hmm. I thought I think that whole thing was in English. So maybe I'm pretty I'm, sure it was. I'm pretty sure it was. May, maybe Passion of the Christ didn't change things, but <laughs> no, it's, it would have been interesting if uh, they actually cast George C. Scott in the Joe Don Baker role. That was originally supposed to happen with this mm-hmm. Cape Fear. I like that he's casted a lot of uh, B movie actors in this, and as well as you know, obviously uh, recasting Gregory Peck and yeah. Robert Mitchum in it too. Mm-hmm. That was cool. So I mean, other than Juliet Lewis, once again. Sort of spoiling the and whole fucking the way movie. she inexplicably bookmarks the movie, like bookends the movie rather. Yeah, um, which it's not about her character. It's not about I don't know why. That's mm-hmm. right. I know. I don't. I don't. don't seems really like a horrible choice, but it is. It's a really fun movie. Can I put my arm around you? <laughs> that is that scene is amazing though. It's, it is an amazing scene. I mean, obviously, I don't think it would have worked in the original. It would have been like whoa. Because wasn't she? She was much younger in the original. Wasn't well, yeah, it? I think. Well, I don't, I don't want to get too, too spend too long on Cape Fear, but I think one that makes the original better for me is um, in the remake. It's number one. They make uh, Nick Nolte's character like morally ambiguous, um, where they go, "Look, I may have framed him because I knew he was guilty, right? Um, and I had to put him away. So I may have." And in the original, it's just about a guy who the system has failed him. Mm-hmm. And also in the original, um, there's not those mind games as much. It's literally like Robert Mitchum's right. just like, well, what I'm going to do is... He has no agenda. He's his just... agenda is, I'm going to rape your daughter, I'm going to rape your wife, and then I'm going <laughs> to kill all three of you. Yeah. And there, and it, it's... I mean, I understand in theory how um, Robert De Niro's sort of seduction of Juliette Lewis's character is sort of creepier, but in theory... In practice, it actually just doesn't really work as well because nothing really becomes of that. Yeah. It doesn't go anywhere. And I think Robert Mitchum, there's an incredible scene on the boat where Robert Mitchum's threatening his wife and he fucking cracks an egg on her chest. Oh, that's so fucking And good. rubs it on her. Yeah. Rubs it on her fucking, like, bare, like, bared chest. And this that's is like so 1962. Your, yeah, that so gets under your skin a lot better. It's than such that. a nasty movie. And Robert Mitchum is the creepiest yeah. motherfucker he's so great in that movie and it's like i found myself laughing a lot more de niro like <laughs> just like i got you now bitch yeah. <laughs> with uh Ileana douglas who's really good in this movie by the way mm-hmm. um a movie i really do want to discuss because i don't know if you've seen it it's a movie called chuck and buck no i have not it's great i think i've heard of it it's really fucking great um I, w- I wonder if they just decided to name these characters uh, just so they can utter the line, Chuck and Buck want to suck and fuck? Because uh, this is a very creepy, um, sort of underappreciated movie from, I, th- I want to say the year 2000, right? Uh, director yeah. Miguel Arteta, I want to say is his name. Arteta. Yeah. Arteta. Um, 
I think he he did a movie called The Good Girl, which I really liked with uh, Jennifer Aniston. Oh yeah, I never one, saw that. That's the only one. good only good performance Jennifer Aniston's ever given. But um, this is a movie uh, Chuck and Buck's a movie I'd seen when it first came out on DVD a long time ago. Didn't think it was that great at the time. N- watching it ten years later, uh, I, I just think it's as perfect as as I would want from a movie. I, I, I th- if I had to make some comparisons, if I had to like do a little mashup, I would call it May meets Hump Day meets hmm. forty year, meets forty year old virgin because it's got elements of the sort of social awkwardness that the character May has, and that you're not really sure. And obviously, as as it goes along, you're pretty sure that she's psychotic and. Um, completely messed up but you're not really sure about this main character in this movie for a while it plays out like is you know is he really going to do something you know destructive is he really going to hurt this poor guy but it's a portrayal of arrested development that's kind of creepy but really sort of cute and endearing as well um i see it was it was written by um i is mike mike white's in yes. it and it was written by him as well though yeah He's a good screenwriter, and he's a. This is he totally sells this role as well. Yeah, I, I, I like I said, I like how it plays with the expectations because Buck seems like he could just completely be unhinged in a very negative way, but it's mostly just because he's lonely and kind of still stuck in his childhood. After you know, he lived with his mother for most of his life, took care of her. She dies, and at the funeral, he gets reacquainted with a childhood friend named Chuck, and. The the connection that he has with Chuck from his childhood is n- anything but ambiguous because at one point Chuck literally grabs his ass in the bathroom and it basically they, he just – he wants to feel close to someone again like he did with – he wants to feel like he has a childhood friend again despite the fact that they're both grown men. Um, but it's really quirky and sort of – a little disturbing in parts because he he obviously has impulse control <laughs> disorder. Like he 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 doesn't really know uh, social boundaries, and you know I, I, clearly he's he's very messed up due to being isolated and lonely. Mm-hmm. But he's got a good heart, you know. He, he, in the end, he, it, it turns out that like all he really wants is to be close again to something to someone. Not necessarily because of losing his mom, but because he is so, you know, like he has this idea in his mind that reality should be, you know, a fantasy. Like the fantasy that's in his mind, I guess, is what I'm trying yeah. to say. Um, that sounds a little bit like the other um, – the movie Mike White wrote and directed. It sounds like a darker version of uh, Year of the Dog. Yeah. Where no, Molly Shannon, um, it's, her, it's, do- her dog is her life and it dies and then she like is – Lost trying to fill it, fill that void with other dogs and people and. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, a lo- I mean, and the hump day element comes in with, you know, are these two really gonna get together again? Because they may or may not have in the past, mm-hmm. and I don't really want to give away what happens. Oh yeah, but don't. It's a really extraordinarily well executed movie. Like, you know, it's it was shot digitally. It, it was one of the f- first movies I remember being shot. Like almost on the kind of camcorder you could get at Best Buy, like a like a little mini DV kind of cam, but it was it's so like 
I don't know why when I first saw it, it didn't really resonate with me, but now I, I really love it. I think it's a really special movie. I, I really want to go check out Cedar Rapids now based on, uh, on how much I love Chuck and Buck because the same director. So, Oh really? Yeah. I'm very curious. That didn't look so good to me. You know, I, I really, I, I get into movies where like a character is just so far removed from reality, you know, that he has trouble separating yeah. reality and fantasy, you know? I, so and that's definitely the case with with this movie and I think you'll get a lot out of it. I think it's a really special film. So Excellent. check that one out. Now I wanted to bring up, in sharp contrast to um, Mr. Kurt Halfyard's recommendation of Joseph Losey to us, um, oh the guys at Row Three were championing this movie, like praising the hell out of um, this movie called Mr. Nobody, mm-hmm. and. I don't know if it ever really opened wide in, in the U.S. It, it played Toronto, I think, in 2009. I'm pretty sure it played TIFF in 2009. And I wanted to watch this because uh, I knew the Film Junk podcast was going to review it, and I was curious about it because when I read the synopsis, I was like, oh, this totally sounds kind of up my alley. It's about alternate timelines and parallel universes, just a lot of stuff because – you know, I'm kind of a kind of a physics nut, mostly because of stuff I've read in Philip K. Dick books that I find interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, and I love you know and a, movies, and a metaphysics like, nut. Apparently, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I mean, a lot of that's in there, and unfortunately, it's so horribly put together in ways that I was dumbfounded by. Like I can imagine, like people watching something like Donnie Darko. And 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 Southland Tales and kind of just rolling their eyes or not un, un, like they're not completely sure of how to absorb what they're watching. Mm-hmm. Like they're they want to go with it. I mean, Southland Tales is kind of all over the mess, but it's an entertaining and fun mess. Yeah, Mister Nobody is the complete opposite of fun. It's just watching different universes that never connect in any way. And all they pretty much do is spout out this horrible philosophical junk right to your face. Oh God! In in like Jared Leto is is your lead, telling you like, oh well, this reality may not be reality. In fact, we are everything, and everything is one. And you know, like just the weirdest sort of like Buddhist meets existentialist philosophy thrown at you, and. It's, it wants to be this surreal head trip movie about mortality, it, but a movie like Synecdoche, New York would get that right, whereas this gets everything completely wrong. What you're saying, I'm thinking it sounds like a bad version of The Fountain. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. It is. And, 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 it, and it jumps to three different right. timelines, I guess. Which or, comment on each other but aren't connected. Right. That's exactly how it is. And Jared Leto is so horrible. And the like the old man makeup, it is totally like Johnny Knoxville and Spike Jones. Oh, really? And Jackass. Oh, I love I, horrible I, old person I makeup in dramas. E- I laughed every time the, he spoke. Oh, man. There's, and it's um, like, you know, it's on fucking some other distant planet. And it's, it had like 2001 elements where there's I, surrealist <laughs> imagery flying at I you. I love the... Uh, um, the the ending the the season the series finale of Six Feet Under I really like the concept of it but the make <laughs> the old people makeup was yeah. so horrible I could not stop laughing during it oh right. man and I think there's oh yeah fucking ghosts of girlfriends past uh, which is the Christmas Carol with my, Matthew McConaughey 
where it's where it's yeah. like ghost uh, where it's, he's being shown his love life and everything what continues if you keep being a womanizer there's a scene with Brecken Meyer in old man makeup and it is hysterical oh uh, i love i love when uh, bad makeup's played for drama yeah well i mean it's that's like one of my favorite things. It's a, basically like a bunch of really interesting ideas executed in such a half-assed manner. And, it's, and of course, there's a love story. Only it's between a stepsister and a stepbrother. And I, it's like there's so many elements in this movie sandwiched together in a really lazy way that made me want to watch all these movies that I love that get it right. You know, like I, I felt like watch. I felt like reading Kurt Vonnegut again, like Slaughterhouse Five, mm-hmm. or um, what's the what's the other movie besides? Well, I mentioned Synecdoche, New York, or The Fountain. Um, I mean, there's some definite Magnolia influences in here. It's just that this filmmaker didn't know what he was doing. He's like, he loves all these movies clear, clearly, but he doesn't didn't have a, a solid screenplay to back it up because there are visually moments where I'm like, oh, that's a really cool shot. That reminds me of Jean-Pierre Jeunet or something, like, you know, City of Lost Children or some Terry Gilliam. But there's no imagination, no sort of emotional arc to cling to in any way. And the acting is bad. I just, I thought it was a fucking pretentious mess. Like, I was angry after watching this movie because it's one of those movies that's like, look at how profound I am. And it's not. It's actually horribly put together and not at all profound. Hmm. It sounds like even with the the bad makeup, old man makeup, I wouldn't want to see it. No. This is the anti-Patrick movie. Oh, yeah. It is. I mean, you like Synecdoche, New York, though. Yeah. Think of all the wonderful things that you like about Synecdoche, New York, and then just flip it around. Flip it. Oh, anti-Philip Seymour Hoffman. (laughs) Jared Leto is the anti-Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Oh, I never connected it until now. I mean, Charlie Kaufman, you know, he can write the the perfect screenplay. I don't know. Who wrote it? Was it the director who wrote this screenplay? Yes. Yeah. No. Not at all a good movie, and I hate to end on a sour note, but that's where we have to end <laughs> for me. Um, so at least, I, I mean, I watched Cape Fear and, and, and certainly would put, put that as a, as a solid grade B movie. Whereas in my mind, from what I remember watching it a few years ago or 10 years ago, it was like C, but, mm-hmm. um, and Chuck and Buck gets an A, Welcome to the Rileys gets a D, Mr. Nobody gets a big fat fucking F. Nice. Nice. Um, yeah, I, there's only two movies I really want to talk about. I'll really quickly go over. Uh, I saw Hunt for Red October. Um, I also finished the book. Um, and everything I like about the book is sort of um, about all these different branches of government and different governments, both Soviet and America, mm. and it's uh, and how they all respond to it. And it goes from people at the top to individual fighter pilots. And, like, there's parts of it that are super tense and, you know, and then there are parts of it where it's just the fighter pilots are glad to actually be doing something. Because the Cold War doesn't get give you a lot of exercise in you know, <laughs> in combat and defense and all that, and it's and it kind of undercuts the seriousness of the thriller, and it um it almost not it's not The Wire obviously, but it right. it has that same sort of v- how everything connects together. Um, this is the book I'm talking about. Now the movie just takes the Jack Ryan story and right. the uh, and the captor of captain of the sub who I can't remember his name the Sean Connery character, and it just makes it their movie. 
so it doesn't even feel like a Navy movie because mm-hmm. Jack Ryan's like this independent person. And what I like about Navy movies is how it's this team coming together. Wasn't Sean Connery's accent really bad? Um, yeah, there's this weird thing they do where the first 10 minutes of the movie, they speak in Russian and are subtitled. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle of a conversation, one line of dialogue is English, and then they speak English for the rest of the movie. Like, I don't know why they didn't start off speaking English or just yeah. keep Russian, but I guess he wanted to make that transition. Oh, wow. John McTiernan directed Yeah, he this. did. I didn't know who that. That's who, um, spoiler alert, that's who we're going to be covering uh, next next episode, John McTiernan. Um, but Oh, wow. It's not very good. <laughs> John McTiernan, actually, there's a couple like parts where it's just uh, Alec Baldwin and uh, James Earl Jones sitting down and the camera's like swooping around them and pressing in while he's talking about like gifts he's going to get his daughter for Christmas. Mm-hmm. It, it was like really silly. Um, but wow. I think my favorite part of the movie was I finally got the joke in uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang where Robert Downey Jr. references um, like they, they – there's a part in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang where they give a bit of exposition that doesn't seem to connect to anything. And then in his narration, Robert Downey Jr. is like, oh, boy, that came out of nowhere. I wonder if that's going to mean something later. It's like that <laughs> shot of the cook in the Red October. Hmm, is this going to mean something later? And it's totally true. The the shot of, like, the cook who's actually the spy for the, for the Soviet government, ah, like, yeah. goes on for, like, five seconds too long, and it's really silly. Um, I remember reading the book, and it, and it played out pretty good in my head, but then I was really disappointed with the movie when I saw it. But I was younger then. I was kind of into Navy stuff at the time and just... Yeah. Military I don't in often, general. you know, I don't often read the books before I see the movies. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering. It's possible that my negative reaction to it was I'm not, I'm not good at separating my expectations from, um, you know, judging the movie as its own thing. Yeah, and it's weird how they they changed Jack Ryan character what three times now because it went from Alec Baldwin to Harrison Ford to Ben Affleck. Ben and Affleck. Oh, I think they were talking about Ryan Gosling doing it. Really next. He's going to – I think he's just going to be in Logan's run. I don't think he's going to be doing it. Hmm. But uh, anyway, I like I like the book, not so much the movie. I saw Stagecoach, which is just one of the best – all-time best movies ever. Um, John Ford. John Ford? Yeah. Not Howard Hawks. I get them – I always get them mixed up with the I'm Westerns. almost positive it's John Ford. If it's you're, Howard you're Hawks, right. I'm going to be probably right. very embarrassed. Um, but it's, it's just a – it's just you're like right. a – Okay. It's just a perfect movie and – you can see this in a long time. you can you can see a lot of influences on in like Star Wars, um, yeah, you know uh, where it's just these characters that are sort of thrown together by happenstance, and then suddenly they have to work towards something bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what's really great about the script is there's all these really subtle character things that just little things say so much. Like there's. There is a lady who gets run out. It's never actually said because it's a movie from the 30s, I believe. Or is it 40s? Late 30s. Late 30s. Okay. Um, And uh, there's a lady who gets run out for being like a prostitute. And there's another lady who gives birth to a baby. And the prostitute like has this really strong connection to a baby. And just her relationship with the kid says everything you need to know about like what she wants out of her life. Like how she doesn't. She doesn't like where her life is and um, and about how she wants to look towards the future and not the past, but she can't because no one you know sees her as anything except her past until she meets John Wayne. And it's like a really touching romance in the middle of this, you know, solid, exciting adventure movie. Um, and it sort of forms the backbone of the movie. And it's, it's fun to see John Wayne young. 
Yeah. It's, it's really weird. I'm not, I'm not up on Westerns. Uh, I'm not as up on we- Westerns as I should be. So it's really weird to see a Western that's not only not in widescreen, but in black and white. Because my vision of Westerns is good, bad, the ugly. It's the brown, long brown landscapes, mm-hmm. you know? Right. So that's, a, that's, that's just like a perfect movie. Everyone needs to see Stagecoach. It's been a long time. I, I definitely remember the, the uh, chase scene, though. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's good. Uh, I saw The Runaways, which is just useless. Um, uh, Michael I would, Shannon. I, I, would agree no. with, I would agree with that. But once again, Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon. The show. Yeah. Well, Michael Shannon's great. I mean, he, he, he's hamming it up. Yeah. But Which it is works. always entertaining for me. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel like, I don't know the story of The Runaways, but judging by this movie, they aren't interesting. <laughs> I yeah. thought Dakota Fanning's character was kind of interesting, but Joan Jett is not an interesting character at all. Or, you know, Kristen Stewart. Guess why? Yeah. Well, <laughs> Kristen Stewart. And then uh, I found it really kind of offensive that their lesbian scene, like the way it was shot, was like, holy fuck, she's on tour and she's making out with another girl. <laughs> oh my God, society's collapsing. Rock and roll, what are you doing to us? <laughs> when... Like, because Joan Jett, it's, that isn't some, they got really, you know, that they were on drugs and they just did that because they were so messed up on drugs. Like, Joan Jett's a lesbian, mm-hmm. you know? So, and and it's sort of implied that Dakota Fanning in, is as well. Uh, and, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's not the case because um, I don't, again, I don't know the story. They were probably just experimenting. Right, but I just, I hate when, like, lesbians or any sex scenes are shot, like, they just fucking split an atom <laughs> and you know, like they just created the atomic bomb and like, Oh my God, what monster have we unleashed? Yeah. I don't have that kind of relationship with sex. I don't think, but the two main movies I wanted to talk about, uh, yeah. Runaways, not worth it. Not worth your time. Hell uh, no. Two Very movies I want to talk about first. It's a movie from 1988 called action Z- Jackson. Um, it's a it's one of my favorite uh, '80s action movies, and it's super underrated. Um, it's a black exploitation movie, um, but it's sort of an update of a black exploitation movie. It doesn't have a like instead of a funk soundtrack, it has like a Herbie Hancock right. '80s soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so much that's interesting about it, especially now. Like it takes place in Detroit, and it was just a, like it came out just around the time that all the uh, factories and stuff were closing all around Michigan. Why don't they have a statue of Axe and Jackson? They should. They should God raise fifty thousand dollars to. I said. I, I, I said that uh, instead of a statue of RoboCop, they should have a statue of Ozymandias. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that'd be more fitting, seeing as what Detroit really represents. But um, uh, our nation's hubris. Um, no, but so it was around the time that all those factories in Michigan were closing, and it's totally about that. Um, it's not, you know, it's not an issue movie, but they chose that backdrop purposefully. So the main villain played by Craig T. Nelson, which fucking Craig. Oh T. my Nelson. God. Craig T. Nelson is the essential dad. So it's so <laughs> like, he just looks like a dad. You can't, yeah. it's that balding. Like, I don't know why he kept the hair around his head. It just makes him look like a dad. <laughs> um, and it's sort of a tweak on his like capitalist character from Poltergeist. He's the ultimate evil CEO and he, he's the head of a car company and he does karate and like he's he's like 
practicing karate with someone in his home and he just breaks their arm and goes, the lesson's over. And it's, it's hilarious because he's still uh, balding and has white hair and like he mm-hmm. looks, he looks like someone's dad doing karate. Um, but anyway, so he's the villain and he, he's the head of a car company and it's about him trying to take over the unions and it's about, um, and one of the interesting things about it is it's both a super cop movie, like sort of like a lethal weapon or dirty Harry, mm-hmm. and it's a black exploitation movie. And I feel like those are two genres that are normally would be very like sort of opposed to each other because right. like super cops are just like statements of fascism and black exploitation movies are about the rise against fascism, against fascism. Yeah. about mm-hmm. communities like coming together to fight the corrupt forces that work against them, whether it's drug dealers or crooked cops or you know, dirty politicians or whatever. Although Black Dynamite was an undercover cop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, there, I mean, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's exceptions, but this was. It's interesting because very, because Action Jackson, he was like a kick-ass super cop, mm-hmm. and before the movie even started, he was relegated to a desk, um, and he he gets keeps getting chewed out by Bill Duke, and Bill Duke is amazing as the angry police chief, right? Because Bill Duke is really intense, and um, and he knows it. So instead of yelling like sort of the chief in uh, Last Action Hero with the steam coming out of his ears, <laughs> he's just like really quiet and really, really subdued. And he just lets his eyes do the talking. He's one of my all-time favorite police cap- angry police captains. So early on, Action Jackson gets – by the way, that's his nickname. His name, real name is Jericho Jackson, which is equally badass. But – um. Anyway, early on, Action Jackson gets framed for the murder of uh, the lead villain's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, the lead villain, of course, actually killed his wife very casually and cackled while he did it because he's super evil. Um, so he's on the run. So he you, ends up using the community and their sort of network of, of knowledge and info and stuff in order to get the jump on Craig T. Nelson. So the whole movie is about this black community. Like, like his main source of information is this this uh, hairdresser and she keeps talking like it's slam poetry. Like all her dialogue <laughs> is done in slam poetry form. And she's, and she's like, Della plane is noon da 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 da. And you know, the unions ain't going to be happy. Like <laughs> she does that weird broken. So, and it's out uh, and it ends with like Della, uh, Della plane's a villain, by the way, I just remembered his last name now. Um, and it ends with him having like this fancy soiree and then all of his friends in the black community just sort of showing up and crashing the party and like all these white people, oh my God, blacks. <laughs> and, um, and it ends with like a big karate fight and it's, it's such a fun movie. Um, and it's, and Carl Weathers, I'm, I don't think I even mentioned Carl Weathers is the lead in it. Yeah. Um, he's great. I mean, I think after Arrested Development, people understand that he's, like, really <laughs> fucking funny. But I think even in, like, Rocky, um, he's funny. I think he's really good in that. Um, yeah, no, for sure. And I think – and he's really good, like, with one-liners, and he's sort of big and muscly. So he, he like, he could have been a really good action star, but he's just – you know, he wasn't big enough. Um, the biggest movies he was in, like Rocky and Predator, like, they just subverted him as someone who thinks he's badass but isn't. So like was, I don't he was funny in Happy Gilmore too. Yeah, that's right. He was. <laughs> he's very good in Happy Gilmore. I don't even necessarily like that movie, but he's so good. So Action in that. Jackson's almost like if Roger uh wait, not Roger. Michael Moore 
directed Chef. Yeah, yeah. It actually <laughs> it actually came out a year before a uh, year before Roger, Roger and me. me. Yeah, and it's I always I think do that with Michael Moore's name. I'm like, I want to say Roger Moore, and and but if. No, I can't. I think it's the better movie. <laughs> I think it's the better movie about uh, Michigan and car companies. Uh, oh yeah, there's also a band of European ninjas called the Invisibles, and they like just disappear at will because they're European ninjas. Oh man, it's a great movie. Um, and the other one is a movie I saw in theaters that I invited you to come see, but you got sick. Yeah, I was um, sad. And this movie is called Rolling Thunder. Now, this is a movie from 1977. Something I've been meaning to watch for a very long yeah. time because it's a huge favorite of uh, Tarantino. Yes, he named his uh, he named his company his production after, company. Yeah, yeah, his production company after them, and it's it's really interesting. It's it's from a um, one of the screenwriters, Paul Schrader. He had the original Ooh, screenplay. Oh yeah, and writer of Taxi Driver. It, it got altered. His original screenplay. I've seen clips of it online, like little uh, portions of it online, and it's kind of batshit crazy. Hmm. Uh, like t- Travis Bickle makes an appearance in that. Like they just like the main character of Rolling Thunder, played by William Devane, and Travis Bickle in his original screenplay just stare at each other for two minutes, and then <laughs> then they walk away, and it's never mentioned. Yeah. So he's trying to create his own little askew universe sort of a thing, I guess. It almost sounds like Rambo, a um, Vietnam vet. Yes. Hills from revenge. I would say this is sort of the more art artfully done. Um, and I think Rambo is, especially compared to the, its, its sequels, Rambo is artfully done. Yeah. Um, but I, this is definitely despite how preachy it gets towards the end. But. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a yeah, it's a populist movie. Right. I, I I think it's interesting. I read someone made this comment recently, and I thought it was really funny that Rambo two and three were people who, who mis were like written by people who like misunderstood who the villain of Rambo one was. <laughs> like Rambo two and three are about America versus the world, and yeah, uh, and Rambo the first First Blood is about Rambo versus America. Yeah, I thought that's funny, but anyway, so Rolling <laughs> Thunder is about a man who gets back, like Rambo. It's uh, like First Blood. I keep calling it Rambo. First Blood. It's about a man who gets back from a POW camp, and it's a revenge movie. Um, and it's the only revenge movie I know that the person. You know, like revenge movies, there's always that point where the person has that snapping point and then they have to go, you know, yeah. it's usually like seeing their wife get raped or their family get murdered or something. Mm-hmm. Something pushes them over the edge and they have to get this hat in, in Rolling Thunder. It happens before the movie even started. He's literally like when he gets home, he doesn't relate to his wife. He hasn't seen his kid since his kid was like six months old. He doesn't relate to anyone. He doesn't know. Like he spent, I think. I, I can't. I don't know if it's it's something like four to six years in a in a POW camp being tortured every day. Ugh. His like concept, his like he he uh, he refers to the time before he was in the POW camp as back when he was alive because he's literally just like a walking dead man. Um, he's got so, severe post traumatic stress. Yeah, yeah, it's all post traumatic stress, and it's just he can't handle it, and he's just completely shut down from mm-hmm. everything. So um, he gets awarded a silver dollar, like a local businesses or whatever. They give him so silver dollar for every day he was in uh, in the camp, oh. and ends up being something like two, three thousand dollars. I don't have the exact number, but he gets um, a bang, a gang, a Mexican gang because he, he lives in Texas. A Mexican gang comes from across the border to steal his steal his money, and first they start torturing him, asking where it is, and. He's not going to respond to torture. Um, so then his family comes home and they murder his family. 
and they shove his hand in a in a garbage disposal. Oh. So he now has a hook for a hand. And it's about him it's about him getting the revenge on the gang, but it's so subdued and it's such a it's not even like he's so dispassionate. You almost get the feeling that he's glad his family was killed because it's literally the only part of the movie, like it's only time in the movie that you think, oh, he has a purpose. He, like, I can't imagine what his life would be like if his family didn't get killed. I mean, hmm. it's, he, it seems like he's trying to connect with his son, but it, it doesn't seem likely it will happen. And then after he goes and exacts his revenge, um, again, like, uh, assuming he doesn't get caught by the police and put in jail, I can't imagine what his life is going to be like. Like, literally, it's like he has already snapped before the movie started. And when that happens, that's just them giving him an excuse to kick into his instincts and to actually have some kind of direction. So unlike most revenge movies, which are sort of like, yeah, fuck yeah, there's action scenes and, you know, all that. There's this, like, sadness uh, throughout the whole thing where, like, even just even just getting information from people to get. Like there's, it's all dispassionate. Um, and, but at the end he gets someone else. He was in the concentration camp with a very young Tommy Lee Jones and Tommy Lee Jones is sitting on the couch. Like this whole time he's just been waiting to hear from his, like, uh, William Devane was his superior and he's just mm-hmm. been waiting for William to tell him what to do. Cause he literally, cause also just cannot function in the real world. So William Devane goes, I found them. And Tommy Lee Jones goes, I'll get my stuff. Like, that's it. It's just that quick moment where Tommy Lee Jones is, again, very glad to have some kind of purpose. So it's really dark in that way. And it's the whole movie is very subdued. Um, sort of has a less is more approach rather yes, than like very like much so. Wish or so something. much so that it really surprised me the first time I saw it. Like I was like, oh, this is kind of boring. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's actually it's like a really interesting movie. Um, and again, it's so subdued that it's not the kind of movie I would put on for fun. Um, it's a it's really well shot and well made. It's weird and, how my perception of it was that. Yeah, like, no. Oh, it's Tarantino. Then that's it's what I was thinking. Really, you know, fast paced and crazy, and you know, like I actually imagine it being something like Death Sentence. No, it's yeah, it's not like a black exploitation movie or a. Interesting. It's that's, a lot that's good. It's it's a, it's it's just it's really strange in that way and. Um, William Devane, there's like the, when he first comes home, his wife reveals that you know he's been gone for years. She started an affair with another man, and mm-hmm. they are in love, and they want to get married. And there's like this long, long like the entire scene plays out with him not moving in the darkness, and his whole face is encased in shadows, and like he's not registering any of this. Mm-hmm. Like everything that happens to him is just a foregone conclusion now. Because he's already dead. His life was before he got into the camp. Wow. So it's really interesting in that way. And yeah. then, so like, it has a pretty great shootout at the end. But again, it's anticlimactic. Because there's no satisfaction being got, you right. know? Um, now, I like movies where it focuses on the character's internal struggle. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and also dealing with the ramifications of, well, if I actually go through with what I want to go through with, what am I going to deal with as a result? And like, well, this uh, is sort of the opposite in that he doesn't care. Hmm. Even like, like even 
even when he's telling, you know, about finding the people and killing him, he's go, I have to avenge my boy. He doesn't mention that as his wife at all. Like, it really is just... He's numb from... Yeah, he's completely numb, and he's doing it because that's what you do. Right. That's what the war taught him to do, you think? Well, it's it's that. I mean, he he is good with a gun. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he was, a, he was a commander in the army. I don't know... I don't remember exactly what his... It says Major Charles. Okay, so he... You know, he was a major dad, right? He was major. He was major. Uh, he was major pain. Um, no, so he's a major in the army. He's commanded people, but again, it's just there. Are, it's just it's it's weird, wishy washy kind of feelings when it not wishy washy, but it's very lots of gray area when it comes to how do I deal with starting my life over? Right. How do I deal with connecting with my kid who I don't know and who has grown up with another man raising him? You know? Huh. Um, well, and, and when you said this was a midnight movie, I just expect like every time he gets revenge or he kills one of the bad yeah, guys. Yeah, and he has a hook for the, the too. audience would be cheering. Yeah, and, and he has know. a... There's one part... There's like a couple parts where he, you know, he pins people's hands to tables with hooks. It, there's a mm. little bit of that, but it's mostly... It's just like, well, now I know what I have to do. Because these people have given me an opportunity to know what I have to do. Whereas before, I, there's no direction to be given about how to deal with when your wife leaves you because you've been in a POW camp for five years and she doesn't know you anymore. So it's a, less of a meditation on war than it is like a meditation about identity and what a man struggles with You know, in terms of, I've dealt with this horrible trauma, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, how can I utilize what I've been? Yeah. Through? Uh, he can't, you know, yeah, for, he, for good before, yeah, before his family gets killed, he can't sleep. Um, again, I don't even necessarily think he it's, he thinks it's for good. I don't even necessarily think he thinks that he will feel better. I don't think he's morally ambiguous in that way. I don't think it registered. Like, I mean, of course it registered. He knows that his family was killed. Um, it's not, he's not catatonic, but, like emotionally he doesn't it's just something that you do like it's what you do that's someone kills your family you find out who they are and you kill them that's it's almost like in that way it almost feels but it's not explicitly stated like well the war did this to me it's more implicitly well and, it's yeah, like yeah. you know in in taxi driver again it's Travis even, Bickle it's, is lonely and alienated and that's why he does what he does basically and in something like Paul Schrader's Hardcore, I mean George C. Scott is anything but subtle in I pretty much that all one. his movies. But that's a movie where like he finds out his daughter is in the porn industry and tries to go after her. And wow, her he writes her. the same movie every time, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> oh man, I was I was see, a little you, you I was a little confused. Autofocus. I was a little confused when Last Temptation of Christ had Christ finding out that Mary Magdalene got kidnapped by a bunch of Palestinians. So he's like, he, he turns to Judas and he goes, we got to get her. And Judas goes, I'll get my things. <laughs> no, but um, Paul Schrader actually disowned the movie as it is now. Really? Huh? Yeah, because, I mean, they probably cut out a lot of the crazier stuff he wanted because it's a very subdued movie. Interesting. That's not what, what I was expecting, but I'm no. really looking forward to it. Now. Yeah, I think, I think it's coming out to DVD um, finally. Um, I know Word. they sometimes play it on, I don't know if you have MGM HD, that's a channel. I might. That's a channel that plays any movies in MGM's catalog, um, mm-hmm. and it plays them in high definition. So if you can find it on there, like some of those movies also don't have DVD releases. So those are, it's a good way to get 
see them properly. So anyway, yeah, that, that that's Rolling Thunder. Um, first time I saw it, I almost was I was kind of disappointed by how anticlimactic it is. But once you know what the movie is, and you when I saw it the second time, it made so much more sense to me, and it really clicked. As and again, it's not it's not exciting. Um, so it's not a movie that I would just throw on as like, oh, dude, you got to see this movie. It's a party movie. I wouldn't necessarily even agree with it as a midnight movie. Yeah, I know. That's why I was like, oh, wow. Um, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised with uh, Paul Schrader. Yeah, um, I mean, being, and, and, and it's behind it, and it's Tarantino's made it turn it, gave it a, a significant cult status. So mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me that's a midnight movie. I just think, I think a lot of people weren't expecting, and that's sort of what's great about it is it, it sort of throws you for a loop. Oh man, this director did motherfucking brain scan. Oh God, Eddie, I remember that Eddie shit. Furlong. Oh, I, I hope our listener who loves Eddie Furlong is still listening. Do you remember her name? Um, uh, was it Jen who loved been. Eddie Furlong? Yeah. Oh God, that movie with that like little video game guy who's trying to be Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Oh, I saw Brain Scan. There was one of those one of those weeks where the cable company gives you a free week of HBO. I saw Brain Scan. Oh my God, that movie is the shit. And by the shit, I mean it's he, shit. The villain. Uh, Dances to a Primus song at one point. Tries to be scary. <laughs> Let me put on some Primus for you. Yeah. Rah! Nothing scarier. Oh, than- and this was and this was co-written by Andrew Kevin Walker. Are you talking about Brain Scan still? Yeah. <laughs> Who did uh, Seven? Of course, he also did Eight Millimeter. Wow, this guy's been working pretty steadily. Interesting. It's yeah. I think I might have mentioned uh, Brain Scan and the movie Hideaway at one point as being movies that I've know I've seen have no recollection of, along with Ghost in the Machine. Like, I remember these movies about computers and technology, or there's ghosts in the yeah. machine, and things are, demons are yeah, coming out brain, of the... Brain Scan was totally a Doom Mortal Kombat right? response, where it's like, this video game is literally making him kill people. Ah! Yeah. Oh, yeah, Hideaway has Jeremy Sisto and Jeff Goldblum, <laughs> two of the creepy... Those two guys should be fucking related, man. Yeah. They're so creepy. And they got curly hair. And, oh my god, and Dean Koontz wrote this book. Okay, now it's all coming back to me. And also the director of Hideaway did The Lawnmower Man. Really? Yep. Oh, man. See, it's all coming full circle with the digital co- computer technology stuff. Mm-hmm. Technological stuff. Technologic. Yeah. So that's it about the movies we watched this week. Cool. Let's get into some movies that we're really excited to discuss from a certain director. A director made some movies, some movies. What? What are we going to talk about now? We're going to talk about a director, director. A filmmaker did something neat. He put out a movie. Patrick and Jim are going to talk about a director, director. Director. Named Joseph Losey. Do you ever listen to the voice of your own conscience? Do you know the crimes you have committed in your heart? See what happened to these two who could not lose the voice of their conscience. The voice that was mine.
first uh, movie we're going to be talking about is The Prowler. But uh, first, I thought I'd give a little uh, history about Joseph Losey, since he's probably a director that most people aren't as familiar with as, say, Cameron Crower, Rob Zombie. Yeah, he's not a household name. No, but he should be uh, after these two movies. Uh, He was born in 1909. He started out um, directing theater, um, and he moved moved to movies uh, in the 50s. He made uh, a lot of uh, social dramas, um, like the uh, family movie The Boy with uh, with Green Hair and uh, the uh, illegal immigration movie The Lawless. Um, But... Like many people who dare to be socially active um, back then, he got blacklisted um, from Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, right at the uh, um, beginning of the fifties, um, and uh, he so he ended up going to England to continue his film career, um, where he did uh, continue it, and he was he uh, he always found critical but never commercial um, success. Now, this first movie we're talking about, The Prowler, is from 1951, and it's before uh, he got run out of Hollywood. Um, and it's a, it's a B-movie um, about an, an unscrupulous L.A. cop, and he meets a lonely housewife while responding to her uh, 911 call about a, a prowler lurking outside her window. And uh, he quickly becomes infatuated with her, and you know, more importantly, her wealth. And he, he starts an affair with her, and it, the affair, it, it spirals into darker and darker places, and the first thing that struck me about this movie was I was blown away with how dark it really got. I was mainly blown away too by the narrative jumps in terms of like within the like first 15 minutes, it's like at first he's just there checking up on her and then all of a sudden it it, it cuts to black and then, Oh, he's over having, you know, wine with her and you know, they're, they're, they're communicating so, Intimately, pretty quickly. Yeah, you it, know, it's like it, like it's almost like the, the the jumps in time were deliberate to like not necessarily for pacing issues, but to show that we are living or we're watching a movie with a character who I, I wouldn't necessarily say he's unreliable, but the fact that time is jumping in ways that we're not used to also sort of represented like we can't trust this guy. We can't trust his intentions, and he makes them pretty well known because in a way I was thinking. I actually had tweeted this when I was watching it. It's just starting out like the movie Unlawful Entry, where <laughs> where the cop is, you know, is actually the bad guy, and he can get away with stuff because he is the cop, and he can say, "I'm investigating" or "I'm hanging out outside," you know, even if he's just stalking well, her. I think the more important thing, actually, that the jumps even do is it quickly establishes um, his motive. It goes right from. Um, the first thing he asks about first time that he meets her when he's responding to the call, he doesn't put a lot of credence into her, uh, you know, her story about a prowler. He doesn't mm-hmm. really care about her safety. He's mostly he mostly, you know, he's attracted to her and he is more. He, he asked the first thing he asks his cop is uh, his cop. His partner is, is what do you think that house is worth? Um, and the way it jumps from those kind of questions to. Him, uh, him, him coming back later that night to quote unquote make sure everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, to uh, to to another night where they're suddenly getting more intimate. You never at all doubt his motives, um, and his motives are so dark. And he is such an amoral character. I was really shocked that this was like approved 
um, you know, that this was approved by the MPAA or the Hayes Code or what was mm-hmm. it? I think it was. I think that's what it was. Yeah. Okay, but because number one, he's he's a police officer. He's an person of authority and he's also a sociopath he cannot be trusted (laughs) he's completely amoral and it's and the whole movie is about you slowly beginning to learn just how amoral he is and just how twisted his schemes are and how far he plans ahead um into manipulating this woman seducing her um and it and you know and he late you know what his plan is by the simplest of things um he uh he goes to uh, he goes to get cigarettes from a locked box, and he finds her his um, he finds her husband's will. Um, her husband is a radio DJ uh, who is never home at nights, and that's why she's always alone, and that's why they're able to always be together mm-hmm. um, at night because he 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 does a night night nightly show. Um, and number one, the act of breaking because she uh, the 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 box he keeps the cigarettes in is locked, so he doesn't smoke too much. So he literally has to break into his box of cigarettes. And just even that act is so symbolic of – and, of course, the title is not referring to the um, maybe exist, maybe doesn't exist prowler from the very opening of the movie. It's about the way he is peeking into her mm-hmm. life and how he wants what she has. Um, and there's a lot of there, – there's a lot of sort of similar movies about sociopath characters. Uh, you know, there are films – there are films like There Will Be Blood. Um, I would I would even go as far as to say, like Gone with the Wind strikes me. Like Gone with the Wind doesn't focus on it as much, but I think Scarlett O'Hara is kind of a very similar character. Hmm. Um, as like, but um, the thing about him, his character. Oh, uh, like T- Tony Soprano in The Sopranos. He's a sociopath. Right. But the thing about um, Daniel Plainview or Tony Soprano is that those movies and TV shows. You, f- what they do is you first respect them because they're good at what they do. Right. It's easy to root for someone no matter how awful they do, uh, how amoral they are, because they're good at what they do. Um, yeah. Some people have gifts for manipulation, like that's that's their talent. Right. But that's literally <laughs> his only, like his only. That's, yeah. That's his, only- what he has to work with to get what he wants is the fact that he has no morality whatsoever. There's never a moment where he feels bad. It, it, uh, it seems like he feels bad for what he's done. Right. There's never a moment where he does anything for anyone other than himself. And he goes about, um, he goes about seducing her and then he promptly cuts off all contact with her just when she get, starts to love yeah, him most to, to make her, to desire him all that, all the more. Um, he even goes about this complicated process of setting up a fake prowler incident, uh, at their house. So he can quote unquote, accidentally shoot her husband. Um, one of the other things I liked about this movie is the movie never it's except for maybe the opening shot, which is the camera peeking into her window as she's getting ready for a bath. It's always he's always the protagonist. Mm-hmm. There's never a moment where you think he isn't the protagonist. Right. And one of the ways it does that is you never see her husband's face until he's shot. Um he sets up a fake prowler, the hus- the uh the uh, husband goes out to investigate and it's only then that you get a close up of his face right before he gets shot. Um right before he shoots him. The lead character is played by uh lead character's name is Webb. 
and he's played by an actor named uh, Van yeah. Heflin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he is greasy and gross. Um, oh, it reminds me of Michael Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little. I, I was thinking it's it was funny because um, this almost, I mean, obviously this wasn't intentional, but it plays into sort of his character, how it can't be trusted. Because in some lights, he looks a little bit like Orson Welles. And mm-hmm. then in some lights, he looks like Dick Miller. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> he's this like really gross character and his intentions are never in doubt. Um, there's never a moment where you think, um, oh, he really does love her. The movie never uh, even plays with that ambiguity, even though, you know, back then that's the kind of thing you would have to do. I can't imagine, like, I can't believe they got away with this um, mm-hmm. back in 1951. Uh, and... But, like, literally all he has, he's not, he's sort of, um, and the lies, they start building on each other after uh, he gets uh, kicked off the force for his, um, it gets ruled as an accidental homicide for killing uh, her husband. Uh, Because they were having an affair earlier, it Mm -hmm. would appear that it was her husband out to a ghost town. (laughs) Like an Indian burial ground. Yeah, like... Like this in the out of nowhere ghost town or something. that he heard about from his his partner likes to collect rocks, um, <laughs> and like literally, like the worst possible during dust storms, mm-hmm. like they have to hold up flaps of canvas to the windows in order to keep her from being attacked, so she can go into labor and he can deliver the baby himself, which is very dangerous. Um, you know, they even say it's dangerous, but of course it was dangerous back then, and literally only because. He can't let the possibility of himself being caught. He can't let that happen. Right. Um, I think it's really interesting too, in in, in terms of uh, uh, the wife or or um, his his lover is the contradictory nature that she has. Where it's like, I know deep down this this man is evil. I know deep down that he killed my husband, but she's still drawn to him. And a lot of that could be because. That, you know he's her only way out, and he could be the father. Yeah, or whatnot, she, but it's a, yeah, it's a, it's all it's implied that he um, it's a, like she's not happy with her relationship with her husband, right? Um, and uh, she, you know, she's, she's sort of drawn. She's drawn to his like aggressive nature. I think as as right. much as she repels it in the beginning, I think she's drawn to it too, and that's what's really like. I I, I feel like. Losi, I mean, with the with the three movies I, I focused on this week, the one thing I noticed pretty consistently is how much he embraces the duality of man, yeah. and like how flawed we we can be in in our actions, but deep down we try to have good intentions, but at the same time we really have no idea about how to execute our actions. Like we do things blindly and not even center on like the actual outcome like what's going to become if i do the, do this and do that but he just does it and i find that i find that i find that most movies are interesting when you can't comprehend like how far is this character going to go right and and especially what i, I always find interesting when i'm watching movies from the past um I, it's i think it's you're you know naturally you're more familiar with movies that come out at your own time right so I'm never sure exactly how far it can go. So it actually has an added <laughs> element of danger. Mm-hmm. Whereas if, if this movie was made nowadays, 
like I wouldn't be surprised if he fucking killed the baby after she gave birth to it because it's just <laughs> that's what movies are now. They're super dark and you right. know they're and that's not shocking to have a movie that's really dark because you know that's that's no longer taboo. But I found myself like really doubting, um, like thinking this movie was going to go in a certain direction and it was going to turn into an intrigue. About it, it's going to turn into a noiry kind of movie about them trying to kill her husband, mm-hmm. and then someone seeing it, and then being blackmailed and stuff like that. And it's literally just about this guy, and he's not good at what he does. He's not subtle. He's yep. not smart. He's not even necessarily charismatic. He just she's so desperate that he's able to seduce her. What he has is the absolute ability to go wherever he needs to go to get what he needs to get done done right um and there especially motivations only in the present moment not even thinking about what's going to become such a aim like i it's one of the most amoral characters i've ever seen because there's not even a there's not a single moment where they're like there's a part where he's screaming at her after she um they he he pretty much kidnaps a doctor to deliver the baby and the bait the doctor um, recognizes him and sort of gets what's going on, and she tell. And then when she's alone with the doctor, she tells the doctor that, "Hey, this guy might kill you to protect his secret." And he's screaming at her at the top of his lungs, and he's like, and he's yelling at her, "I did this all for you!" And you don't believe it for a second. Mm-hmm. You know it's not true. And, and then another revelation comes into and, play, and and just she's in such danger. Um, cause another sort of aspect of this movie is like how the system like fails her uh, um even when they first even when they the cops first show up not even him but his part uh not even uh a web but his partner uh i wrote down this line of dialogue his partner blames her for like having a prowler on the premises mm-hmm. because the window's open and he goes hey you ever notice how a bank keeps its counting room out of sight it stops people from being tempted and it's basically the Hey, you were dressed like a whore. You deserve to be raped sort of mentality. She even (laughs) like assuming that there was a prowler in the beginning, which the the way the camera is done and the way she I'm assuming that there was a prowler, though you never see him. Um, Right. uh, Even then she's failed. Um, Her husband gets murdered and and no and it's protect. He's protected by his fellow cops. He when he wins the case. And it's ruled as accidental homicide. His cops go over and congratulate him and pat him on the back and cheer him on. Um, she's absolutely helpless. Um, and I, I don't think until that moment where she uh, – until uh, he, he gets acquitted, like I realize exactly how helpless she was. Um, mm-hmm. So – and then also at the end when he starts to get caught and panicked and it's sort of revealed that he's not really good at this. It reminded me a lot of uh, – Jerry uh, from uh, Fargo. What's it? What's oh yeah, um, William Lundergard. H Macy. Yeah, Lundergard. Right. Um, especially the sort of the scrambling away and the. Oh yeah, it's a good comparison. Like I, and, I mean, he's literally what trying to like climb up a mountain of sand or something. And even and even the, even the movie seems to uh, exist in a moral vacuum because mm-hmm. like he kills her husband. Okay, he doesn't have good intent for her. He didn't right. kill her husband because he loves her. It's not that's not in question. But yet when they get married, the music like there's something like the music is all happy. And when they like they buy a hotel in the middle of nowhere, like it's it's the it's shot as if this is the beginning of the newlywed couple's new life. 
Like, it literally doesn't acknowledge what happened before. Um, and in that way, that movie even more comes from his perspective. And that also feels like a Coen Brothers thing where yeah. they sort of exist in this moral, you know, morally bankrupt world. And uh, it's there's it's just it's all about there's no justice. It's about just what people are willing to do. Mm-hmm. Even if it means being diabolical. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, yeah. And and also just watching his desperation play out is really uh is really compelling and i like the fact that you know it sort of starts off you know a little voyeuristic and obviously the film noir elements are there and then it completely goes into a whole other world with the final act which is a lot like what we're going to discuss soon with the servant yeah um it's actually another similarity between this and the servant as a transition is um Number one, I was really surprised to find similarities between the two because Joseph Losey is a director, but he didn't write either of these movies. Um, I'm not sure if he has written any of his uh, scripts, but these movies are actually um, both the the Prowler and the uh, Servant are really similar in how they are about these characters who want wealth. And the only way they have to to attain it is to manipulate these people mm-hmm. and just be and just be willing to go there so um and with that i think we should get into a conversation about the servant i was simply besotted by her i thought she was keen on me too i was besotted by her long before i came to you i was led up the garden path I couldn't be more sorry, honest. I had to find her home somewhere. That's that's why I thought she was devoted to me. Anyway. You see, I, I didn't know a thing about what was going on between you two until that night. So after Joseph Losey was blacklisted, um, he moved over to England to continue his career, and there he stayed, actually. In 1963, he directed um, a Harold Pinter screenplay, which was adapted from a novel. This movie is called The Servant, and uh, it's pretty much a four-character piece with almost all the drama occurring in um, a rather large townhouse, which was acquired by the wealthy and aristocratic playboy Tony. He decides to hire a manservant to look after his daily needs. Barrett seems like the ideal servant. He cooks, cleans, and even coordinates the decoration and furnishing of the house. Barrett also convinces Tony that a maid is required and suggests that his sister, Vera, uh, come aboard and join the household. Uh, Tony's rather prudish girlfriend Susan senses something's amiss here, something's sinister about Barrett. And uh, the relationship between all four of them becomes really complex and a rather uh, uh, evil mind game sort of plays out. And uh, eventually the, the roles between all of them become reversed and control begins to unwind the thing that really got to me was the the switching of sympathy a, a little bit from from oh, Barrett yeah. from Barrett to Tony because like there's a scene where um Tony's uh, girlfriend Susan just like 
tortures, practically tortures Barrett. Not you know, not in the, in the traditional sense, but just like have. I want you to pick up my coat. I want you to do this, and I want you to do that. And light my like, cigarette. Yeah, yeah. Just and and then after like he, he's supposed to leave the room to make her a sandwich or salad or some shit. He's like, no, come back over here. And then she basically is like, you know what? You're lower than pond scum or whatever. She, you know, you're nothing. You're just a stupid old servant. And then something happens, and we're not necessarily going to give it away, but just something occurs that really blew my mind in terms of – I mean, you knew something was under the surface Are we going not going to talk – because I almost feel we have to. I mean, we it's, could talk about it at the end and give a, a spoiler alert, alert but um, I don't think it will – I don't think it will affect the dramatic impact if you watch it. Um uh, maybe just, it would it, because a lot of this is about shifting sympathies. And um, first off, the first thing you notice is it's fucking amazingly shot. It is uh-huh. a beautiful movie um, with a lot of deep focus shot and the camera's constantly moving and pushing in and um, circling, circling yeah. people. And it's all and it's constantly rearranging the staging based on uh you know, in the and who's on what part of the frame based on who's having the upper hand at this moment, and um, and that's why it reminded me. I, I thought for sure it was based on a play because it seemed very theatrically staged. Yes, the the whole within with, with the scenes. small amount of characters and the um, small amount of characters and, and the one set and the uh, and Harold Pinter, who's a, an amazing playwright. Um, you know, writing. I, I also was thinking this was based off of a play, but it isn't. It's based off of a novel. Um, Which but, I'm going to pick up after seeing this because I'm yeah. very curious to compare. Um, but so it's a beautiful movie. And in that, and a lot of the camera work and stuff, uh, at first, um, I, I was almost I was thinking the movie was like a like a genre noir kind of a movie <laughs> where it's a lot of a lot of really beautiful deep focused photography and it's all about class struggles and about how this uh you know how this aristocrat treats his servant yeah. and um you know how how they are you know how the servant is obviously smarter than him but how he doesn't get treated as an equal person and I thought it was going to be a, a film like that yeah another film noir only more about social commentary. And sort of, un, you know, playing up while, you know, we should focus on the, you know, the servant. I mean, he's human too. Right, right, right. What I thought was um, going to be all about. But, and yeah. especially the way, and that's sort of how the movie works is. Then it by becomes first really subversive. You, um, <laughs> but then um, the other director I was thinking of, who I think was probably, you know, I haven't seen other Joseph's other movies, so I'm not sure if it was just this film because because um, the Prowler the camera work is good, but the, it, it's a much lower budget movie, um, so it's not um, it's not quite as beautifully shot, and it's not the you know the the camera movements not so intricate. But I was thinking um, someone who's intru- influenced by both these movies would be uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, um, the way he uh, he's constantly you know. Uh, pushing in his camera and the way uh, that like like there will be blood the end the last 15 or so minutes of there will be blood for me mirror the, the, the last the 15, 15 minutes, minutes of, of this. this film where you think the movie is one thing 
Um, and then it goes on a little too long and it goes somewhere a lot darker and weirder and a lot and a lot less simple than you thought it was going to go. Yeah, the the last act of this movie is very subversive. But um yeah, so at first your sympathies are with the butler because he um he's there from the beginning when they first buy the house and he's helping picking out the colors and he's teaching, you know, he's teaching the the uh the master uh, he's teaching Tony um you know about what what should go where and mm-hmm. He, he's always right there, but then he's a he's, big fan of Feng Shui. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's very suave in the way that you would expect a butler to be. Right. Um, but then he invites um, a, a girl over, um, who he says is his sister, to be a maid. Um, but you know, even even before she comes, that that's not the case because they because it's in their phone conversations. It's into they have a sexual relationship. Mm. Um, and then. It starts going into a little bit of a, a stranger, darker place where the maid is seducing Tony, Tony. Yeah. by order of um, by order of Barrett, the the servant, and and your sympathies begin to shift with Tony because um, because you realize Barrett is, has been running a game on him this entire time. Barrett um, never another case of manipulation, right? Because Barrett never liked Vera. Right. Um, and because because he saw Vera as this threat because Vera never liked doesn't like Barrett. She doesn't trust him. She she thinks he you know, I he, think Susan is his girlfriend. Oh, I'm Tony's, sorry. Yeah, yeah Susan. Tony's girlfriend. Yeah. Susan is uh, is uh, Tony's girlfriend who doesn't like Barrett. Right. Um, my apologies. And um, Susan doesn't trust him because he feel she feels he has too much control in the house um, and feels that Tony is too easily swayed by his opinion. So Barrett gets rid of her basically by, mm-hmm. by shifting Tony's opinion and by seducing Tony with Vera, who is his supposed um, fiance. Right. And then once the confrontation occurs between all four of them, where everything's out in the open. Yeah. Um, it's, and that's one of those, uh, perfect scene oh the way gosh. it plays out because you don't know what the fuck's going to happen and you're like well how's this going to play out and the way it does it's like it almost could be the end of a movie it could be That's the resolution it could be the resolution it's like oh Tony's left you know and he's fucked he was manipulated that's it it almost plays like a Neil Labute movie <laughs> yeah in that regard yeah in um, that they they that in in that Barrett and Vera work together to destroy this man. And then Barrett comes back into Tony's life. Begging. In, in a way that, yeah, I, I I don't know if it's not necessarily ambiguous, but the it seems like uh, Barrett and Tony develop a, a relationship that's more than just master and slave. Well, I feel that... <laughs> here's the thing about... I mean, it's uh, not explicit, well, but... Well, no. Um, well, uh, what happens is Barrett Barrett comes back, and Barrett is begging for his job back, saying right. that it was all Vera's idea. He didn't have anything to do with it. He didn't know about it. He didn't know about her and Tony, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was like, oh, that doesn't make sense because it's implied earlier. And then, of course, yeah. at this and, I, point, and Tony has been Tony's been lonely himself. Tony Tony doesn't know what to do with himself. He ever since he got this house, he has had, and Tony is an aristocrat. Tony, right. he's old money. He, you know. He keeps talking about this job he's going to do, like starting cities in Brazil. But the whole thing is kind of silly sounding, and everyone sort of knows it, but they don't say it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so Tony takes Barrett back, and their relationship is no longer yeah a master or servant. Um, I wouldn't say it's uh, homosexual because it there's seems two- homo- it seems homoerotic in some regards. I well, it they are definitely. Uh, it's like a cross between the odd couple and who's afraid of Virgi- <laughs> and who's afraid of Virginia Wolf. Yeah, where they bicker about things that are broken, and then they just start getting the screaming matches, mm-hmm. and then it's back to them being playful with each other and sort of. I love the dynamic, the shift in those scenes, and where actually, it goes and, from one extreme to another. And like and like the beginning of the Prowler, um, it just goes from one to the other to the other mm-hmm. to a scene of them yelling at each other to a scene of them eating dinner together and right. Tony complimenting him. And, and there's no like music to serve as a transition or anything. They are definitely like a married couple. Un- but the the problem with the actual gay sub like saying that it's actual gay subtext is there's been too much evidence this whole time that that right. they're extremely attracted to women mm-hmm. and afterwards there's also evidence of the same thing it's it's more just a it, could sim- be, it could develop out of just their loneliness and desperation and the so, fact that they're living together in this house and that's that i mean there's a scene where they talk about being you know, feeling like they're pals, and they mention that they've been in the army before, and it's just yeah. Like, I that's felt this. I didn't feel the same thing. It's like, just, I had a yeah. He goes. I had a friend. That's true. That's I was. I was exactly. I wrote down that note too. Yeah. When he goes, I had a friend like that once in the army. That's funny. I had a friend like that in the army too, and I. Mm, it, if, if it almost one, plays like that scene in Safe that you weren't sure about. Yeah. It's yeah. Well, I mean, it in the art that definitely seems like a euphemism so maybe Could it's be. a Could maybe be. they're you know like bisexual or pansexual or but that's totally cool <laughs> but well right right um but um what's in what's really interesting about it is and then the way barrett uses you, alcoholism yeah Bar- alcoholism barrett barrett <sighs> begins to have complete control before when he he is he's in the servant's position he had no control. He he could he subtly influenced Tony, mm-hmm. but he was Tony's subservient. Right. Um, and at this point in the movie, he is literally like just an abusive husband, basically <laughs> yeah. telling Tony, "Oh, it's okay." And mm-hmm. um, and they and it, it's such a surreal because the way you would expect this movie to end is with the with the confrontation where everything's out in the open where. Um, suddenly Susan knows about Vera. Mm-hmm. By the way, a uh, girl who plays Vera. Woo! One of, Smoking. I, I really like, uh, like 60s English girls with the big, the big yeah. hair and the, like the accents mm-hmm. and they're just, they're sexually liberated and they're just, oh, you're Alfie. And <laughs> <laughs> <I'm so sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> they're really, really, and I, I like the fashion, like they're really cute to me, the little mini skirts and everything. Mm-hmm. She's very attractive. There's, but, a, there's a couple of very excellent seduction scenes that are very implicit in the way they play out. It's very nice and subtle. And it, it and the reason I, I brought it before, like there will be blood, is um, when I first saw there will be blood, I thought the ending would be him being alone in his mansion with his son going away from him, um, him screaming, "You're a bastard in a basket," yeah. and his son leaving him, never speaking to him again, and that and that oh, his hubris, he tried to have it all. But he, in the end, he was left alone with no one. And then... And, and when I first saw it, that's how I wanted it to end. Yeah. And and then it goes on for another, like, 10 to 15 minutes where... Um, what's what's Paul the actor's Dano. name? Paul, Paul Dano. Dano comes back. Yeah. And it's like... And there's this shift. And then you go, oh, wait, that's not what this movie is at all. What is this movie? Like, <laughs> in, in the same way, the last 15 minutes... 
Because and Paul Thomas Anderson did that with Magnolia, especially yeah. That's uh, subverted your expectations, and that's what's so great about the servant. And even the way just the last act plays out, and you think, oh, it's going to go this way, it's going to go that way, and then it ends with like some sort of I don't know crazy orgy or what. Yeah, it's <laughs> I I really want to see it again because. When you first see it, you're so convinced Shocked. that this is a class movie. That yeah. this is uh, that this it's called the servant. It's about an aristocrat who doesn't understand how much he needs the servant. I think it's more about power struggling, even in just in terms of the sexes. But um, on just a strictly textual level, like what is Barrett's game? Like does right. Garrett does Barrett rather um, just want to control him and? Just, it's like, is that what he's getting off on? And did at what point in their relate? Because it starts with Barrett being very uptight, very formal, very yes sir, no sir, interviewing for the butler's job. It yeah. would give me great pleasure to cook you dinner, sir. No, I don't drink, sir. Um, <laughs> was it his plan the entire time um, to to? destroy tony's life like he's taking right. he's gleefully. And why would he what would be the motivation to do that i mean at first you're like thinking a typical movie would be like oh he just is doing it for money or trying to get right i thought to it manipulate was for money that's and that's what i thought when they first started living together i go of course he wanted the house yeah. he i thought like the prowler he saw wealth and the only way he had to get it was knowing that he could manipulate this person and that mm-hmm. he was amoral enough to not care who he hurt in the process. Or maybe he was just getting but, the house for him and Vera. But after he has the house and he even has, then they, they view each other as equal. It's not enough. He starts to assert his power over him. And at this point, now Harold Pinter, he does a lot of, um, you know, politically charged um, kind of um, stories that aren't always necessarily obviously uh, politically charged at first. Very, uh, they're allegorical. And at the, and it's I think last- it's more about sexual politics in this movie. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I could see that. I could see. Obviously, I could see the allegory for class, but I don't know. There's something about with Barrett the way he's like, you know, practically raping uh, Tony's girlfriend Susan mm-hmm. towards the end. There, I'm thinking like, well, shit. This is obviously a reversal of from the scene before where he's like, I'm the man now. I'm in control. This is my world now. You know, before you just thought I was some fucking servant, and now look at me. You know, and it's so that the way that plays out. I mean, it's not necessarily the very last scene either. I mean, the very last scene. I think it's uh, just walking away. I it's think. the party. It's the party, party. ending. Yeah, and, um, and Tony is just like Tony alone is, and oh, with his bottle of alcohol or something. Yeah, yeah, and Barrett walks away and he's smiling. Right, and um. But so it could he again he could just be a sociopath who just wants to fuck shit up. <laughs> yeah. I mean I don't want to think that. But, but it feels it feels like it's about something bigger. And again, yeah, I, I, it does. I, I, I want to watch this again. I probably will watch it again pretty oh, th- soon. I'm owning this movie for sure. It's yeah, one of my it's 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 definitely one of my new favorite movies. I'm um, excited about it. Yeah, it's definitely. I think it. it's um, but it's it it, it it's um. Uh, even even with not quite under not quite understanding what Pinter is really trying to say with the ending, is it, um, is, you know, is, is it that is it that um, power corrupts? Is it? But it doesn't. It feels like even before, but I don't think it's that because even before Barrett has power, he feels to have ill intent. Yeah. Um. Is and it, Tony wasn't as cruel 
to Barrett as Barrett is and to Tony. The, and, it, and I love how this movie takes advantage of the fact that in these kind of movies, you always immediately put your sympathies with the uh, lower, the working class. Right. You never, you never, you know, you don't go to Vegas and then root for the house, <laughs> you know, and it manipulates you into inherently trusting that. Oh, Barrett is a good, wise man who just wants more than he can have, and he's not appreciated. And it and it takes those feelings that you inherently have, and it twists them. Um, well, I love my, my favorite kinds of movies are the ones not necessarily like as you're watching them. I can't trust these characters. It's the ones where you go like, I can't fucking trust this movie. What what's it going to fucking do to me at the end? And I loved how it played out. Even though I am like I'm with you, I'm not exactly sure what the purposes of how why it, the why, why it played out the way it did at the end. I still enjoyed the hell out of it. Oh yeah, but what is the message other than it being like a, a class conflict metaphor of some kind, or the master slave relationship being reversed in such an extreme way? I don't know. Yeah, um, and then also I just I had a couple. Like notes number one, the mirrors. Um, oh yeah, there's a lot of mirrors. There's one Black uh, mirror. Swan. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's not as obnoxious as Black Swan. <laughs> that I love Black Swan, but that was the one part of Black Swan that kind of I felt nah, was. It's all right. I mean, all of Aronofsky's. None, nothing he does is subtle, no, no, but yeah, I felt yeah. the mirrors were a little too much. But anyway, there's one. Uh, there's like a convex mirror over the fireplace. Um, I'll be your mirror. And they and it's and it like it sits over the fireplace like this like the eye of Sauron like it just <laughs> it just sort of impassively judges oh, yeah. everything and there's all these scenes that play out where one character is only seen in a mirror um, and and about and there's all these scenes of people like looking at themselves in the mirror and of people talking to reflections in the mirror but not the actual yeah. person. And again, I, it's something that I, I, I couldn't really put together a coherent, uh, you know, uh, rationale for the motif. I mean, obviously, there's there's the idea of uh, in the original, originally, the servant always being watched. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it feels oppressive at first. Like I said, it's like the Eye of Sauron. You think, oh, my God, it's they don't you know, it's it's like the big it's the big convex mirror in the Seven Eleven where the guy can see everything's going on. It's yeah, it feels like an implicit implicit distrust but but then it keeps going and it gets even there there's they use it even more um as your sympathies begin to shift to tony so um you know that's another thing i would want to check on a second as much as like you know tony was drunk and powerless at the end i was like why isn't he fucking doing something why because like in a in a normal movie i would expect tony to like lash out not necessarily like turn into the hulk or anything but fucking go start you know, attacking Barrett for what he's doing to his girlfriend, but he's just sitting there. I mean, I don't know necessarily if he was drugged. Was he drugged? I think he was just drunk. No, he was drunk. But yeah, what I th- now this is this is the thoughts I was having when I thought that the the confrontation between the four main characters was going to be the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. I thought that the message of the movie was going to be ultimately servants don't need the master. The master is the right. one who needs the servants. Um, that's not what the ultimate message of the movie is, but I still think that's – I still think it's um, that Tony has grown up with silver spoon in his mouth. He never learned how to do anything. There's a part later when they're living together like an old married couple 
where uh, Barrett goes, well, you know, you should go out and get a job. Mm-hmm. You know, where, <laughs> and Tony's like, oh, I don't want to. Like he's like he's a 17-year-old <laughs> Like kid. he's Hugh Grant and about a boy. <laughs> <laughs> I actually still haven't seen that. Oh, that's so good. But, um. Yeah. Completely different movie, though. Yeah. And it's, and he absolutely, at the, like, by the end, then the reason Barrett has power is because he needs Barrett. He doesn't know what to do without Barrett. It's the same. It's the same as the the wife and the prowler. She has no recourse because she doesn't know what she could do. Um, there's a scene where <laughs> there's a great. It's almost like they've given up control and, and have accepted it. Yeah, you know. I mean, I don't know if maybe in you know the, a, a, another act of the movie, Tony would you know come to come to his senses or come to terms with things i don't more, i think it's like i think in it's a more like direct a, way i, I guess. think it's i think it's like a junkie where he just needs it yeah and he doesn't it's destroyed his life but it's the devil he knows right. you know he doesn't know what he can do outside of that world mm-hmm. but um we have a, to talk also really quickly um the performances are fucking great yes the two guys are amazing and the, i've never seen them ever before in a movie no um, uh, dirk dirk bogard plays uh hugo barrett the um the servant yeah, and James Fox plays Tony. I think he's like uh, he uh, Barrett starting or uh, Dick Burger Dirk. It says Dirk in this thing here. Was it Dick or Dirk? Dirk. <laughs> Dirk. I'm sorry. Did I say Dick? Dirk Diggler. Dirk. Um, yeah, he pretty much starred in a lot of comedies. It says too, and this was like his breakout role. So, yeah, he he kicked ass. He was he was great. And I I love the scene between uh, Barrett and Tony in the bar when things start coming to light, and then you you sort of realize, oh shit, these two guys need each other. Well, yeah, <laughs> as well, selfish think, as destructive as they are, again, again, you fall for it. You know why? Yeah, because he's he's working class. I know. <laughs> How could he be the bad guy? Right. And that's like, and that's, that's a sociological implication. Yeah, I still can't. And it and it and it plays on that kind of guilt. Yeah. Um, I still can't believe that he's the bad guy, kind of. But it's undoubtedly he's, you know, he's from the beginning. He's the bad guy. But uh, even I like what I love about that scene in the bar is they're even like the way it's shot. But this entire movie is just the way it's shot is just so expressive, and the mise en scène expresses so much and. He like knows he knows how to utilize like a, a small space or an interior oh God, space, yeah. and it almost like reflects the states of mind of the characters. Absolutely, like they're shaky or yeah, that's what I loved about and, it. And it's, and it's and I was actually I was a little worried because it was just it was just oh is this some kind of stage drama about class about an aristocrat and I thought I wouldn't you know it's it oh did, no it it's going to be like Dogville right I thought <laughs> it was going to be well I like Dogville but I thought it was going to be inaccessible um, and. But it's really exciting to watch. Um, yeah. There's like there's there's scenes of tension. Like the first time that uh, Vera seduces Tony, mm-hmm. um, he just turned the faucet on and then he turned it off. But there's still a drip, and the dr- and like as he's as she's like, oh, you know, it's so it's so hot in here. It's so <laughs> nice that I'm not alone here. Yeah. Like the drip just starts getting louder and faster. And then a- that's the kind of stuff that yeah, P.T. Anderson would do too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean that's and. Th- and especially like, you know, on a personal note too, is like lately I tend to be multitasking when I watch movies. Uh-huh. This movie fucking turned off the laptop, put away my phone, completely immersed into it. Oh my it. god. Yeah. And it was I mean so immersive. I, was... I, I did that with the prowler too, but way more with the servant where I'm like, I have to see what the fuck's going on here. 
and more so. I mean, like uh, like a lot of movies, like even action movies, I feel like, oh, you know, I've seen it a bunch of times or whatever. I can multitask. The Servant, you have to pay attention because you'll want to. And it's yeah. a rewarding experience. And, and, like the, and like The Prowler, it's all like the filmmaking is so assured and well done that nothing has to be said. Mm-hmm. You don't need to be told that um, Webb is the bad guy in The Prowler. Um, it's never said. Um, he, what he says is that he loves her. What he says right. is, you know, that they should be together. What he says is that they would take the baby away if if they don't give birth in this ghost town. But you never believe it because because of the way it's made and because of Joseph Losey's strength as a director to to express those things that characters don't say. And I think that or goes- to include the audience in on like scenes where uh, Barrett and Vera are like you know, behind a door yeah. and they're secretly coercing or secretly, uh, what's the word talking, I guess, <laughs> right. or, um, you know, coming up with something. But even, even the, when, uh, even after the first encounter between Tony and Vera, um, it cuts to a later day where Tony sends Barrett out to get this like bland kind of brown ale beer. And you t- to Barrett even like sort of scrunches his nose like we have plenty of good beer. And it's like no, I want this. <laughs> I want this shitty beer. Yeah. Um. And uh, so he goes out to the store, and it's just an excuse to get Barrett out of the house so he so Tony can go fuck who he thinks is his sister. Right. Um. When oh, Barrett yeah. when Barrett, when comes, Barrett back, comes back, that look like the, he knows. Yeah. And and it's not ambiguous whether he knows. And that's like just and there's a lot of scenes like that. Um. And not only that. It's really funny. Mm-hmm. It's a funny movie. It's, I mean, it's Harold Pinter. Harold Pinter does amazing dialogue. Dark comedy. Yeah. And he has a very dark sense of humor. And I was actually, um, in prep for this, I was looking up, see if I could find any, like, maybe interviews with Joseph Losey or something on YouTube. And I found um, someone telling a story about how they were at a press junket, if that's what they were called even back then. Um, for the movie Accident, which is another movie that Joseph Losey and Harold Pinter did. High up on my cue And now. <laughs> Joseph Losey and Harold Pinter just stonewalled all of the cue- the audience. The audience kept going like, uh, so um, what, do you- what does it mean when the character does this? And-, and Harold Pinter kept going, what do you mean what does it mean? I don't know what you mean by what it means. <laughs> that can be frustrating and then, for a Q&A and so, audience. So eventually they just stopped talking to Harold Pinter and they kept going to Joseph Losey. And Joseph Losey kept doing the same thing. Mm. <laughs> and, and, the, and the person recounting their story was like, they, had, they were by far the most obnoxious filmmakers I had ever seen. <laughs> and, but, and the point of, point of me telling this is they're so in tune with each other. And Joseph Losey, he gets some really good jokes in that aren't in the script. Like, when uh, Tony goes back to visit his parents, um, <laughs> uh, uh. It, they're talking about they're talking about like people in South America. And when it cuts to Tony's dad, there's like three um, like big they look like Greek style statues in the background, and they're all posed in various ways. <laughs> and Tony's dad is also sort of like sitting there with one hand on his hip, and he's not moving. He just has like a cigar. <laughs> He looks like a like. Remember the part in Inglorious Bastards where it keeps cutting to Winston Churchill, and yeah. he's exactly like that famous photo of him, <laughs> and he's just not moving. It's like that. He's just he looks like a statue. He looks like he's po- yeah. and you know and it, and it's like you, their conversation is about indigenous people of South America, but the way Losey frames the shot, you know everything you need to know about Tony's relationship with his parents, right? Um. That's an that's an imp- that's a, that's a hell of a gift when you can just let the camera speak. Yeah, 
this Great movie, self. yeah, this movie, like, there's barely anything that takes place outdoors. There's barely anything that takes place in different settings. Um, and it's mostly four people in in the same house. And it is thrilling to watch yes. the camera work. Like, literally, um, like, especially towards the end when you don't know what's going to happen and things start getting crazier and they're playing, they're playing hide and seek and they're shouting silly things <laughs> at each other. Yeah. And then, like, when they find each other, they just start, they, like, he attacks him. Uh, it was, I'm like literally on the edge of my seat because I have no idea where this movie is going. Yeah, and, is he going to beat him to death with a bowling pin or something? And you know, and as when you're watching a movie and you're trying to think, okay, I have to say things about this later, you're constantly analyzing it and you're trying to constantly critiquing it and going, mm-hmm. okay, okay, so it's What's this, this kind means of movie. this? Yeah, this means what it's this kind of movie. And this movie, like four or five times throughout the entire thing, just pulls the rug out from under you. But you don't have to be an intellectual, you know, film analysis geek like oh, us no. you can totally just watch well, this I, as an entertaining that, that's what i'm saying it's movie. massively entertaining right. it's very funny it's beautifully shot it's super energetic for the kind of movie it is yeah um which again it's that's where i guess i mean paul thomas anderson mostly gets his energy from martin scorsese but and robert altman yeah and i i also robert altman i mean again uh, i felt a renoir sort of um uh, influence on this and Robert Altman has a lot of Renoir in his mm. in influenced him as well so I was kind of reminded of Robert Altman at times but oh, I could sure go for some Renoir <laughs> some red <laughs> chilled Renoir yeah yum I like a I like a nice bottle of white tati myself now I got I got an idea for a mashup in the future go for it Lucy and the pussy cats Lucy and the pussy cats that's great so I'm going to give The Servant a solid A. I'm giving it an A+. plus. Grade. Grade A. I'm giving it an A+. A+. Plus. A plus plus, plus, no, just plus, one plus, 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 plus. Putting it up there with movies that we've seen previously, uh, like um, American Werewolf in London, I think is an A+. Plus, or uh, yeah, Stagecoach is probably an A+. Plus. But anyway, so that's – and uh, what, what, what grade would you give The Prowler? I'm going to give it a B. I'm going to give it an A-. Minus. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh just because it is so low budget um and unlike the servant i would say some of the acting is a little uh too big yeah that's probably the problem i had with it and another problem i had with another movie that i watched of his called uh time without pity which is basically um a father and son film that is also a courtroom drama where um, the father wants to prove the son's innocence. And, you know, it plays out in a very conventional way. There's not a lot of surprises in terms of the the way the story is told, but it it has a lot of film noir qualities. But the problem I had is, you know, you brought up the last action hero um, police captain. In a way, the villain of this, like, despite it being a really subtle underplayed movie the villain in this obviously states right to the audience <laughs> i did it i'm crazy and just like it, it's really grating after a while oh, how yeah. loud because everybody else is so quiet and subtle and the villain in this is just like way he, he belongs in another movie so he that, belongs in a john travolta movie <laughs> yeah yeah basically <laughs> bless you carly bless you so yeah no i mean time without pity was good but not nearly as great as the Prowler or the Servant. Oh. I think I think the Prowler I wasn't as emotionally wrapped up in as I was the Servant. Maybe that's why I'm giving it just a, a little bit of a lower grade. Yeah. But I think if I watch it again, I'll, I'll like it as just as much. Almost. The Prowler close, close is to it. a I, really great is like a is a, a great movie, movie. But yeah, 
but the servant is really incredible. It's a classic already in yeah. my mind. So that about wraps up our episode on Joseph Losey. Do you have any other uh, final thoughts? Um, yeah. Uh, well, I'm really excited to see what else he ha- what else he has. I know. Oh yeah. I mean, if we watch more movies of his, obviously we'll bring him up in the what we watch segments. And I, I, I plan to watch Accident because it's another Harold Pinter. Uh, collaboration. Yeah, Harold Pinter is actually a really good screenwriter. Not all, is he? Not all playwrights. I, I didn't even. He you did, know, it's funny. I didn't even check to see what other movies he. He did Sleuth, written. the original oh, Sleuth. That's good. I think he did the remake as well. I'm not <laughs> sure if the maybe the remake just had the exact same script, um, but uh, yeah, he did Sleuth, and um, he has some really. And he, he, I've I've read a couple of his plays, like, and then I've seen. Uh, I can't remember. It's a backward. There's a movie that he did that's uh, not a movie, a play he wrote that was uh, backwards chronologically about uh, two, about three people. And um, they called them, Memento. No, it wasn't called <laughs> Memento. Um, and it's about how they get together and break up and get together and all of the tension that's happened between them. Hmm. That's really, really a good play. A little bit like Blue Valentine then. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would say um, except backwards. Right. Um, and between three people. Okay. Um, but so, not exactly. so yeah, I'm excited to see what else he does, especially since he's not really a uh, writer. So I'm curious to see if, I mean, he lucked out with the prowler and, and the servant, or if he is really just this damn good. Yeah. Cause I think modesty blaze is a lot more campier. I haven't yeah, watched that's it. Like, but... That's like a, a, our man Flint, James yeah. Bond kind of campy mm-hmm. secret agent movie. I'm sure it might be fun, though. So we'll check it out, and I'm curious about his M remake. M is a fucking amazing movie, the original. I've heard. So his, I've heard the M. Oh well, yeah, they, they, I, I, I'm not. I'm not going to guess that it's better than the original. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I've heard like that it's super underrated, and mm. I, I can believe it because. Uh, I can see him taking on that material and going in dark places with, with that. Um. So, yeah, should we announce who we're going to be doing next week? Or I Absolutely. believe we already did. Uh, um, John McTiernan. Mm-hmm. Um, we were sort of struggling because there's so many great action directors out there. Yeah. And James We're trying Cameron to cover, and, you know, like a lot of different uh, genres or different Mark Lester. Of, yeah. So we're, 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 we want to hit a foreign director at some point. But uh, for next week, we're... We're going to uh, take on John McTiernan. Are we having a guest, possibly? Um, possibly. We're still working out how to um, record everything via Skype. But uh, I, have a, I have a friend who's very knowledgeable about action movies named Renee. Um, oh, I thought you were going to talk about me. No, no, no. <laughs> Renee, Renee's on another level. Renee, uh, he's, he's a very, very sweet gentleman. And uh, he's, he's, you know, like any, like any fan of movies, let alone action movies, Predator and Die Hard are. You know, he loves them. Well, as well he should, because he has eyes yeah, and yeah, ears yeah. and a brain. You could say that he he would watch them anytime. Uh, anytime. <laughs> <laughs> when you did it just then, it sounded like you were coming. <laughs> okay, now it, sounds, <laughs> now it sounds like a... Anytime. If it bleeds, anytime. we can kill it. Yeah. No, you know what? I always think Bill Duke says that line, but I know it's Arnold. He says, yeah. "If it bleeds, we can kill it." Mm-hmm. I just think I just want Bill Duke to be saying that line. That movie's that movie's real good. We'll talk. We don't yes. need to talk about it. Yes, now. we're gonna have a good time. Um, I mean, again, we'll, we'll bring up Last Action Hero. I'm sure 
because it's a movie. Yeah, that's a grating one, but uh, that's a favorite of ours. But if you want to send us a line, we love hearing from you. We didn't get any emails for this week, but uh, um, Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. That's Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our website, Directors Club Podcast.com. That's right. Not com. Dot com. Yeah, if you have uh, suggestions for directors we should do, if you, uh, you know, comments. Oh, you'd... we need to definitely thank Kurt Halfyard. Oh, absolutely. Of, 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 of Row 3 slash uh, Cinecast, who uh, recommended that we check out Joseph. Yeah, Wilson, I was really. eternally grateful. I'll... I was really nervous because I was afraid, oh, geez, I don't know who this is. We could be. I don't. I mean, I don't know who this Kurt guy is. How does he know what movies? You oh, know, he's smart. He's he, smart. Oh my god, yeah. But he did love Mister Nobody, so uh, <laughs> I'm. I, you know, yeah. We can't. We can't all be perfect. Right. So it's all good. I'm eternally grateful for having discovered this filmmaker, and you should do the same. Absolutely. So thanks everybody for joining us today on the Directors Club podcast. I am Jim. I am Patrick. See you next week. Now while I love you alone. Holy fuck. She's on tour and she's making out with another girl. (laughs) Oh my god. Society's collapsing. Rock and roll. What are you doing to us? (laughs) This video game is literally making him kill people. Ah. Love without you alone.